Welcome to the Flaps Podcast. Hello and welcome to Flaps for Winter 2012. Apologies for the slight delay since the last one. We can tell you've been getting worried. As Nigel Parry wrote on Facebook just a couple of days ago, where are you? I hate being flapless. Well, Nigel, call off the search. We're no longer lost. No, Mark, we're never lost, are we? We're uncertain uncertain of position. position. We're right here. This month's celebrity pilots, a man who's just as fast in the air as he's on the ground. It's the 1992 Formula One world champion, Nigel Mansell. When you open up those throttles in a good jet and you take off, it's just freedom. Now, Nigel Mansell has shaved his off, but our friendly squadron leader, Pablo Mason, would need a flymo to tame his tash. He's not talking about that, though. He's going to be talking about coping with cockpit emergencies. If you don't shut the engine down within the next few seconds, it's liable to explode and ruin much of the rest of your day. And you think, bugger. Now, the one thing that no pilot wants to do is crash a plane. But in a bit, we're going to speak to a couple of chaps who did exactly that, and on purpose. They're the team behind that amazing Channel 4 TV show from a few weeks back where they crashed a Boeing 727 just to see what would happen. It's not every day you get to be the last man on board a 727 that it's going to crash in the next two and a half minutes. And this month we launch a new feature in Flaps. It's the Fly-In, where we visit friendly airfields across the country. This month we got off to a shaky start. Find out why later. In the past, we've had plenty of amazing celebrity pilots. We've had rock stars. Alex James from Blur, uh, Nick Mason of Pink Floyd and Half of the Feeling. A best-selling author. Frederick Forsyth. And even Dave Rawlings. The man who opened the Paralympics. But we've really pushed the boat out this time. It's the president of the Institute of Advanced Motorists. Eh? Well, he is. But he also happens to be the 1992 Formula One world champion. It's Nigel Mansell. Hello, Nigel. Hello, good morning to everybody. Oh, good afternoon, I should say now. That's what pilots do. They're unsure of their position. They're never lost. <laughs> you never lost. <laughs> See, that's our phrase. You're you, a listener, Nigel. You've been here for five minutes and you already know how flaps work. Yeah, never lost, always well, uncertain, uncertain of position. position yeah. uh, so how long have you been flying? Uh, well, 33 years now. That's, really? That's quite yeah. a long time. So, I mean, you, you were you were flying, obviously, when you were racing. Did you use it as a mode of transport? This is getting very sort of show-busy, motor racer, well, dashing well, the around the world in his own jet. The thing was, the late, great Colin Chapman uh, used to fly helicopters and planes and various things. And obviously, as a race car driver, it's useful if you can fly a plane. So, um, yeah, I trained at uh, Birmingham International Airport, the old Elmden Airport, and obtained, I think, my licence, I think it was back in 78 or 79. And you've you've always flown fixed wing. Yeah, well, I'm a helicopter pilot as well. Because oh, okay. so. I've got this theory that even like you know rich and famous people can't actually afford to fly helicopters. We were talking to someone else. There was a rock. They were a rock band, and they couldn't afford helicopters. Yeah, no, I fly both, but obviously um, very fond of jets, and uh, obviously flown a lot of jets as captain for well the last 25 years plus. What do you fly nowadays, then, Nigel? Uh, the last plane I just had was a CJ2 plus, a Cetacean, but I had a Cetacean 10, which was transatlantic, and flew at uh, Mach point nine. Too, so uh, that Ooh. was quite a quick plane. So as quick in the air as you are on the ground. Well, a bit quicker. Yeah, it's, significantly it's, it's, quicker. It's, it's one of the quickest planes, uh, uh, domestic planes that you can fly. Well, was the, the last Citation that was was that the one that had the the issue that got the uh, the tail wrecked in the jet wash? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, there was a there was a, a plane aircraft company which I won't mention that decided to open their engines full blast and forget what was behind them. <laughs> Always check behind you. Uh, 
Yeah, well, it wasn't my problem. It was theirs. <laughs> and how much did that cost to sort out? It cost them a lot. Blimey. What happened then? Did you just blast off? Well, the it just basically the, the blast was so uh, so hard that it uh, knocked all the uh, rudder locks and elevated locks off and uh, caused a little bit of damage. Do you think that learning to fly helped you be a better racing driver? There's a possibility in that because it's a discipline and you mustn't get things wrong. Um, you have to program your mind, which is all about racing. Because there's a saying in racing, if you ever have to think, it's already too late. And, you know, and sometimes being a, a good um, fighter pilot, because I've been privileged to fly Harrier jump jets and combat aircraft and various things with the RAF. Um, yeah, it, it does actually help uh, if you can multitask. Conversely, then, does, uh, does being a great driver help you when you learn to fly? Yeah, no, I think it does because, you see, um, being a race car driver and you're driving over 200 miles an hour most times, you learn the uh, ability to slow down speed. And slow downing speed, your brain works faster. Obviously, if your brain works faster when you're doing 10 miles a minute in the air in a very fast plane, um, because that's what catches people out when they go from prop aircraft to jet aircraft. Everything happens so much faster. It's a bit like my instructor when I learned, she said, always try and think before the airplane, think in front of the plane. Absolutely. If, you, if you're in front of yourself and everything's programmed and you know you tick all the boxes, flying's a joy and it can be really enjoyable. If you're firefighting and you're behind the curve in an airplane and you, you get some of the procedures wrong and, and then the uh, you know air traffic controllers are sort of uh, saying different things to you, <laughs> then you, you can sort of uh, hold the your breath a few, that times. A few times. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Do you get pleasure from flying or is it just a function to get you from a to b no it's 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 twofold i don't trust many people so uh, <laughs> and, and i'm a reasonable pilot if not a very very good pilot and i figure if you're spending all that money doing things you might as well get the enjoyment from it because there is a wonderful enjoyment when you open up those throttles in a good jet and you take off it's just freedom and it, it's it's good and it was you know and i have to say flying in america is still a lot more fun than it is flying here you can do a lot more things and uh, enjoy yourself a bit more and obviously, as you well know, uh, the rules and regulations now are uh, fairly yeah, prohibited. Absolutely. So, uh, well, and the it, weather as well. There's yeah, the other thing. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you you know, you famously raced cars, world champion back in 1992. Would you ever race aircraft? You know, like you see the red, the you know, the Red Bull guys. Would you ever do no, that? No, they're, they're a breed onto their own. They're they're a very special breed, and uh, I think it would be fun in a, in a lesser extent. But uh, but no, I think those days that I, I did that, I think the special thing I did was uh, some combat flying. In, in the Harrier jump jets yeah. and that was something very special in a dive a vertical dive at 500 and sort of something odd knots and putting 22 to 24,000 pounds of thrust in front and slowing down in the dive to about 140 knots in just a few seconds that was that's quite impressive. hairy isn't it yeah that was very very interesting and of course I mean Formula 1 and flying there is a there's quite a crossover because of all the aerodynamics so I mean, you must have been the only guy obviously racing that understood you know when they're explaining yeah, well, downforce and everything well, you know I never did all that it's just lift isn't not, it the other way around not forgetting when I you know followed flying a lot of, back in the 70s obviously the, the Lear jets had a, a very critical wing and you know, they used to get it in a tuck and, and a lot of pilots died because it would just go nose down and then just dive straight into the ground. And uh, the one pilot who threw the undercarriage out and slowed it down enough, wrecked the plane, but then survived, they actually realised what, what went wrong. So it had a softer wing put on and, uh, you know, the plane was, uh, was a lot better. Anyone who's driven a Formula One car for as long as you have has had big offs, OK? Any strange instance in an aircraft you've had in your flying time, 33 years of it? 
Yeah, no, I mean, we, we've had two pressurization problems over 40,000 feet. That gets your attention. <laughs> um, you, know, we've, you know, we've had we've had other things and total electronic failures where the plane tries to turn itself upside down and, and things like that. But, you know, being in the left-hand seat, you catch it before it does that and you just obviously have to call for a full emergency and, and land as soon as you can. Of course, yes, yes. So what are you up to these days? I mean, obviously, you uh, you know, you, you're here today talking to us, but what, uh, what do you normally fill your days with? Well, this last couple of years, I've been very hectic uh, with UK Youth. I'm president of UK Youth, took that over from the Duke of Westminster for the last 10 years. I've been involved with the charity for many more years before that. Uh, we have 7,000 youth clubs up and down the length and breadth of the country, and I head up somewhere between 40 to 45,000 volunteers at any one time. And we reach 750,000 uh, youngsters uh, at any one time in a year, or and sometimes up to a million. So uh, that was pretty full on. We rode around uh, England, Wales, Scotland, and we did 1,375 miles in 13 days last year, which was awesome, linking all the youth clubs together. Um, so uh, it's a continuation of that at the moment and a lot of other things to boot. And your uh, your boys have followed your footsteps into a bit yeah. of racing. Um, they've done very, very well. And, and have they followed you into the air yet? Do they fly? Well, hopefully not. Because, uh, <laughs> but you said you'd never let them race, Nigel. Years no, ago, you well, said your sons would no, never follow it, you into a racing it's car. It's a very expensive field to be in. And if I told you how many planes I've owned and sold and how much money I've lost on planes <laughs> over the years, I'd be a lot better off if that hadn't happened. Uh, I think um, if it's, um, you know, uh, uh, have the time again, I'd rent a plane. <laughs> I mean, you just did that. Um, it was very funny, wasn't it? Last year, the um, the money supermarket advert. Um, got to ask you: Would they ever insure you for anything? You know, so oh, you, some of your cars yeah, and your planes. Would they? Yeah, insure, would, could no, you get insurance through that? Absolutely, they did. They they insured <laughs> they insured one of my cars. So really? you could you could put hand on heart. <laughs> was I with the company? You can answer yes. So it's very important. Yeah. <laughs> now, what's more terrifying, Nigel? Your first solo in an aircraft or your first Grand Prix stars? I think that's a very good question, and the Grand Prix start wins hands down uh, because I was sitting in a pool of uh, petrol. <laughs> and so yeah, I was true. getting second and third degree burns for the first 42 laps before the uh, before the um, engine blew up, and I remember that very well because I was in, it was actually Birmingham uh, uh, emergency here. Um, I came to hospital at half past two in the morning after the race to get all the um, uh, blisters de-roofed. It's funny you say that. My first solo was sat in a pool of petrol. but That wasn't <laughs> petrol you were sat in. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And uh, we've got to ask you, as you hear, I mean, and, and it was also asked in the advert that we mentioned a minute ago, what has happened to the moustache? We like the moustache. We like you now, Nigel, obviously, but it was your trademark. No, I, th- I think the nice thing is it fell off. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's just one of those things that happened. It came off the one year and, and then people who are dear to you and love you say oh goodness me you look 10 years younger so there you go it stayed off i grow it back occasionally but uh but no it's it stayed off it's gone a bit white now so <laughs> uh, there's a confession listen we can't let you go without seeing what you think about um modern day formula one and drivers like lewis hamilton and fernando alonso well it's, it's very different i mean first of all um to get where they've got their class acts uh, great world champions respectively um, but, you know, the thing that's so marvellous about Formula One now is that you can go off the track at 200 miles an hour and then drive back on the track. Mm. 
uh, without getting hurt or having an accident. Mm-hmm. And, and in our day, you left the circuit, you had a massive yeah. accident. You were the but, uh, the crash test dummies for the guys now. Well, it was it was very interesting. I mean, three broken backs, broken neck, and broken arms, wrists, and various other things. And and of course, you know, on the tracks that they currently run on now, I probably wouldn't have had any of those injuries at all. Well, listen, it's fantastic to meet you. Uh, just we have to ask you very quickly before you go. Have you ever been stopped by a policeman for speeding who's knocked on your window and gone, "Who do you think you are, Nigel Mansell?" Has that ever happened? <laughs> well, believe it or not, it has. <laughs> it has. <laughs> and then you know, I didn't say anything, and he looked up as he said it and saw me sitting there, and he was marvellous. He just shook his head, laughed, and walked off. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, Nigel Mansell. Thank you for being yeah. our celebrity pilot on Flaps this month. Hi, thank you. Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. What am I doing on Mayday? Damn, where's my diary? Flaps. The best thing about holding a pilot's licence is that you can go anywhere. As was proved 25 years ago when Matthias Roost landed his Cessna 172 in Red Square in Moscow. That's great, but he did go to prison. Yeah, I know, but if you pick your destination more carefully, you won't end up spending four years in a Russian jail which is where we come in. We'll tell you about all the great places to fly to that won't get you locked up. Flaps fly in, helping you avoid four years hard labour. We've left the warmth and dryness of the studio to come out to Wellsbourne Airfield for the first in our new feature, Flaps Fly In. And it's chucking it down with rain and we haven't actually flown in. It's so wet we decided to, to drive, drive here, instead yes. we've driven here. But, you know, it's fine. It's a lovely airfield. Uh, there are one or two brave souls risking it, so uh, there is some flying going on, but it is very wet. We are about five miles to the east of Stratford, pretty close to Birmingham, right smack bang in the middle of the country, so it will be an ideal place to visit. So we've moved out of the horrible wet weather and uh, we're stood here with today's FISO, uh, Frankie Stewart. Just for people who don't fly, who might be listening to this, explain what a FISO does, Frankie. Yes, certainly. I mean, you've all heard of air traffic control and they control the aircraft in their vicinity. FISO is flight information. So uh, we provide information to everybody flying in our area, on the ground, in the circuit, passing overhead, to make their flight absolutely safe. So flight information, that's what we give. And we're in your, your domain here, in your cosy little tower. Um, how, often, how, how often are you here? How long do you spend in, in the tower doing a shift? It varies uh, anything from a couple of hours to 11, 12 hours. I virtually live here. No, no, I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> What's the history of this place, Frankie? Well, it was purchased. The farms that were here originally were purchased by the MOD at the beginning of the war to provide uh, a base for bomber aircraft. Wellingtons were based here. And it was planned in the usual three runways, crisscross runways, and operated during the war, mostly training a lot of Canadians. But in fact, uh, they were sent out on the Thousand Bomber Raid, which uh, the very famous Thousand Bomber Raid. A lot of young, inexperienced lads flew here. Uh, and then at the end of the war, roughly at the end of the war, after the RAF had finished with it, the family bought it back and made it into a, a general aviation airfield. And you're fairly central, of course, here, being near to Stratford and not far from Birmingham. So middle of the country, do you get a lot of people flying in? Is it a busy airfield? It's a busy airfield for location. It's a busy airfield because it's a wonderful airfield. It's a busy airfield because we've got lovely long tarmac runways that are not affected by the rain, as we're seeing here today. Uh, The management is superb. 
the boss flies himself, very enthusiastic, fantastic lot of staff here, great air traffic. So, you know, just a popular, wonderful place to go. And, of course, the cafe. Hey, we'll come to the cafe in a minute. That's, that's, why, that's why we're here, let's be honest. <laughs> And is it an easy airfield to fly into? What's the circuit like? Yeah, it's very easy. It is. It does get busy, very, very busy at times. I mean, uh, the days I delight when I got four on final, six of the hold. That's absolutely great. But yes, it is. It's uh, one of the flattest airfields from the approach point of view that I've ever worked at. It's fairly easy to spot, although people do mix it up with the adjacent Gaiden and occasionally adjacent Pershaw. But yes, it's fairly easy to spot and uh, very nice to land on. Lots of runway, good approaches. So yeah, quite easy. But just be careful when the market's on one of the runways. I've nearly made that mistake myself. Well, people do stand up in the tower sometimes, look out at that runway when it's a bit windy, because that's the runway that's into wind, the UK being predominantly southwesterly winds. That was the longest runway when it was an RAF airfield. And they say, could they take off on that runway? And I say to them, well, if you look a little bit further, I think you'll see a cluster of uh, pretty dense market stalls. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Have a go if you like. Good luck with that. (laughs) Absolutely not. You don't have a go when you do like. (laughs) Now, Frankie, one of the the most unique features of this airfield is the Vulcan bomber sat within our eye line at the end of the runway there. Yes, that uh, flew in here over 20 years ago. Uh, I wasn't here then. Uh, Quite dramatic it was. Uh, It was intended to come in, wasn't it? It Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) An engine failure overhead or something. It was intended to come in. It did a fly around and then landed with a parachute and was purchased by the airfield uh, and then handed over to the group that maintain it. It's in tip-top condition, had brand-new Olympus engines last year, uh, taxis, does full-speed runs, a real attraction. And on a Saturday morning, anybody who wants to come and climb up into the cockpit for a small donation uh, can do that, and we'll get a first-class look around it. So uh, very welcome anyone who wants to do that. But, yes, it's a fantastic thing to have there. So we've heard about the Vulcan. Uh, what what more mundane aircraft do you have here, how, and how, how many have you got? Uh, there's uh, It varies a little bit, 50 or 60. We've got um, five schools, including the helicopter school, and a lot of private owners, a few groups. So quite a, a, a wide variety of, of aircraft here. Um, and it's purely visual, so no instrument uh, approaches, but uh, using adjacent airfields and uh, aids, it can be flown in reasonable weather. Listen, it's lovely to meet you. Thanks ever so much. Uh, and we're going to go to the cafe now. Can you, is there anything you can recommend? Go and enjoy your uh, all-day breakfast. Okay, so we've come down to the Touchdown Cafe. One of the most important parts of the flaps flying will be the the breakfast, the burger. What's it like at the cafe? Mm. Elliot's had a breakfast and is grinning Mm. like a Cheshire cat. I can say, I know this is the first one we've got nothing to judge it against, but the bar has been set quite high. I would say that's a a good nine and a half because there's always room for improvement. (laughs) If I get it for free, it could be a (laughs) ten. Well, we've got Matthew here, who's the owner of the uh, of the cafe here. Busy today, it's always busy in this cafe, and you're quite well regarded, Frank. Well, we know, and Frankie tells us you are. Well, yeah, we we have quite a good reputation. We've been here for nearly 13 years now, and we've never advertised, so we deal solely with word of mouth. So uh, we must be doing something right, because they keep coming back in. Back in 2011, we got the top five uh, large breakfast in the country, according to Witch Magazine. And uh, this year, we've done the top breakfast in the country, according to Flyer Magazine. Um, yeah, so it's, it's nice when somebody recognises what you do. 
So Flyer have given you an award for your breakfast. Have Fryer magazine given you an award for your Fryer? Not as yet. Not as yet. We're still waiting on that one to come through. I don't even know if Fryer magazines exist. It but certainly it should, should do. do. It should. It? And, of course, it's that old thing, isn't it, with flying, that basically you're spending £100 on a burger. So it must be quite good, really. I mean, obviously, your prices aren't £100 a burger. Let's, let's make that absolutely clear. But, you know, it must be good food for, for people to come and pay all that money to land and, and, and come and visit you. People tend to, uh, tend to like it, yeah. I like your notice. We do not operate fast food service. We do serve good food as fast as we can. That kind of sums it up. Pretty much. In the summer, it can get really busy. Sometimes we have people queuing for 45 minutes just to get into the door so uh, yeah we are we are a little oversubscribed in the summer there's always something to see on a sunny day not so much on a day like today where it's overcast and windy but uh, yeah uh, when the sun's out it's a great visual spectacle out there lots of aircraft lots of helicopters all sorts of visiting stuff thank you ever so much anyway and go back and you've got a queue now you've got a queue quick yeah yeah quite a few people need serving now so i'll leave you to it and if you want to visit Wellsbourne, check out their website. It's wellsbourneairfield.com. And Frankie says, watch out for Birmingham's airspace. It's overhead at 3,500 feet. And Frankie also says, relax. It's Mason's Minute. Someone asked me recently about how do you deal with things on the cockpit when they go wrong? Well, as Nigel Mansell said, they certainly do grab your attention. Invariably... When something goes wrong in the flight deck, it's something that's never happened to you before. In a simulator, in the classroom, in discussions, in practice, there's always some difference that makes this very real occurrence very focusing. In my case, it was during a tornado flight from my base at Larbrook in West Germany out over the Irish Sea, we were going to be doing a bit of air-to-air refuelling and then low-level navigation over Scotland and back in time for bacon sandwiches. During the climb out of Larbrook to our operating or our transit height of about twenty or 30,000 feet, a red caption came on on my engine monitoring panel. This was a TBT caption. TBT, Turbine Bearing Temperature. Doesn't mean a thing. You just close the throttle, wait for the caption to go out, open the throttle again, and it's been a spurious warning. So you close the throttle, you look at the caption, it's gone out, no it hasn't. You put the thrust lever back to idle, it is still out, and you think, bugger. Because if you don't shut the engine down within the next few seconds, it's liable to explode and ruin much of the rest of your day. Um, navigator, I'm not sure whether he had that warning in his rear cockpit, but as soon as I mentioned it and he got his checklist out, he realised that uh, this particular order of actions that we were to carry out were highlighted in Dayglow, underlined in red, crossed through in various other colours with an indication of this doesn't happen, so no need to worry about it anyway. But um, one of the things that came to my mind was that I had shut the engine down, turned the aircraft back towards my operating base, entered a controlled glide because at the altitude we were, the aircraft would not maintain level flight on one engine, and issued a precautionary call to the controllers saying that we were diverting back to Larbrook and needed an emergency reception with the fire crews standing by. The surprise to me was that I'd done it without thinking about it. Ain't training 
marvellous. And the more training you do, the better you get at these unforeseen moments. When you get back onto the ground, if you are a drinker, then enjoy a large scotch. If you're not a drinker, then start drinking. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. A few weeks ago, four million people tuned in to watch Channel 4 crash a plane on purpose. At 2,500 feet, I'm just going to take two steps and straight on out like I'm diving into a swimming pool. Quite an air blast. We'll be doing 130 knots. If I had my arms out, I could dislocate a shoulder quite easily. It's not every day you, you get to be the last man on board at 727. That It's going to crash in the next two and a half minutes. And it's one of the reasons I also accepted the job, because it's pretty darn exciting. The show was called The Plane Crash, and it was the brainchild of Jeff Dean. And Jeff joins us now. Jeff, it was an amazing programme, a really audacious, crazy idea. Did it come about in a moment of madness? Well, it's even worse than that. It was also fuelled by two bottles of Pinot Grigio. I was having lunch with uh, David Glover, who commissioned science programmes at Channel 4, and my background is science broadcasting. And we were trying to think of something that would combine the spectacular in terms of visual um, television with the, the intellectual. So we wanted a bit of content. And uh, and I went through a number of, of different ideas, and David sort of went home and home and home and home and home. And it got to the point where I, I said to him, you're not going to commission anything from me, David, are you? Unless it's as spectacular as dropping an elephant off the Zambezi Bridge on a parachute. And he said, well, if it had scientific validity, I would certainly look at that. <laughs> so encouraged by that, I went away and started thinking about big big science stunts and came up with a list of about uh, about 10. And, um, and top of the list was something to do with big aeroplanes. So if you like, one jumbo led to another. So what, just out of interest, what was second on the list? Shooting down an orbiting satellite. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Really third, good. third on the list was shaking a four-storey building to bits. <laughs> you just like breaking things, don't you, Jeff? That's what oh, it is. Oh, yes. And, yes. and, and, and you did up. spectacularly well, Let, let's be honest. I mean, it, it's one of those things, it's it's great to have, you know, as, as with all these things, have a couple of drinks, come up with an amazing idea. How do you go from the amazing idea to actually making it happen. How long did it take? Well, it took a while. And I have to say, I was I was shocked to get the call uh, from David when he said, we'd like to take this a bit further. And I thought, oh my word, what have I done? So I knew then that I was, was going to have to pull it off. But uh, the, the next stage in that game, which is usually the most difficult, turned out to be comparatively easy. Uh, the, the next stage is, is trying to raise the money. And of course, it was going to be a big budget. Not only did, did we have to buy a plane, as you know, even old broken down planes are not exactly cheap. Um, we had to find somewhere to do the thing we had to work out how to do cameras we had to um, work out how we were going to get some real science out of it so it wasn't going to be cheap and I thought it was going to be really problematic but I went off to a conference in uh, in Florence the World Congress of Science Producers and um, and within two one sentence pitches I had acquired two other co-production partners so uh, I think it was an idea that was waiting to happen and what was the budget do you mind telling us well the budget at that stage don't forget this is back in 2009 um, was uh, was a little bit shy of two $2 million. Now, by the time we'd finished the thing, that had risen to the best part of three million pounds. Um, and that was four years uh, in the making. So uh, a lot of that went in just keeping things going. It also turns out to be remarkably difficult to ensure a plane to crash it. It's not like third party fire and theft, is well, it? <laughs> well, it would have been, been a bit like that. I mean, the, the, ma- the major part of that would have, would have been um, public liability. Yeah. But since we're crashing it in the middle of a desert and there's no um, um, sense of habitation, 
population within, um, well, actually the best part of 50 miles and the amount of fuel we had on there, there was no way the plane was going to get that far, even if it got away from the remote control and so on, then that seemed to us to be quite uh, quite reasonable. And the uh, production management team went back and they checked and they checked and they checked and that seemed to be okay. The plane that we found eventually was was in Oklahoma, and um, it had nine hours left on the engines, which is why we were able to pick it up for a, a pretty realistic price. But as well as that, it had very well documented uh, maintenance records, so we knew the thing was uh, potentially going to be able to fly. Um, and we didn't need many more hours than that uh, on, on the engines, as long as we weren't going to take it very far. So the idea then was that we were going to crash it in California. And the uh, the, the American end of the production, who um, had looked into this for us, had in principle uh, agreed from the FAA. But then it seemed to get stuck in the FAA's bureaucracy and it wandered its way up the chain of command, eventually ending up in Washington. And the people in Washington um, fell prey to some sort of institutional paralysis in the sense that they couldn't decide whether they wanted to do it or not. So what happened next? Well, what, what happened next was was we, we looked um, essentially at how far away we could take the thing uh, within the, the parameters of, of the engine life um, and without having to do a really, really major maintenance on the plane. And it turned out that we could get it uh, to a radius that included a very, very nice dried up lake bed in northern Mexico, uh, Laguna Saluda, as you will have seen on the uh, dried up lake, it means, you know, a lake of health. Everything came together there. The the, the downside of it was that they said, we're not going to give you an open-ended permit to do this. Obviously, you know, we don't want you coming back in 10 years and saying, oh, but you said we've got a plane, we want to crash mm-hmm. now. So we had a strictly limited um, timescale on it, which took us to the, the end of April this year. And having got that notice, we had to pull out absolutely every stop you can imagine to get everything ready and we were right up to the, the wire 48 hours the thing we wondered jeff when, when we watched it we had we had me and mark had this conversation afterwards what what did boeing and what did what do the airline industry think of this because it, it seems remarkable that with cars they crash test, test them regularly but it's never happened with an aircraft uh, we, we've all everyone we've spoken to is really surprised that it's never been done with an aircraft well, i know you showed in the documentary that nasa tried it and worryingly mucked it up but it just what what did they think of it what, what's the airline industry's uh, take on it being well we we didn't go too near to them um for all sorts of reasons it being uh, america litigation is never far from people's minds not to say for one instant that, that boeing or whoever else would have tried to stop us doing this i don't think they would have but i don't think they were a bit like the faa they couldn't be too enthusiastic about it um, because you know questions start to get asked why haven't you done it in fact i'm sure those questions will now start to be asked uh, why they haven't done it before now jeff the the plane that you crashed was a 727 yeah which came into service in the early 60s right would you do this again with a, a different aircraft, maybe a bigger or more or more modern airliner? Well, I'd love to do it with a bigger and more modern one. The The main reason we ended up with a 727, in fact, I, I was very keen on a, getting a Lockheed 1011 at the beginning um, because they, they really are built like tanks. And it was in the days when Lockheed was uh, building to military specs. And those are strong aeroplanes. But then, and I'm sure you guys know this already, but it was news to me, it turns out that the, um, the flaps and the control surfaces in the tail are uh, weighted down with depleted uranium. Oh, oh yeah. yes, yeah. You don't want to be crashing one of those. <laughs> well, well. Again, it's 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 a slight. It's a peculiar thing. People hear the word uranium, they think, oh, we're all going to die. But it turned out that it would have cost us an enormous amount to have it removed uh, in a a safe fashion. Um, And at the same time, we were starting to look around and think, well, actually, the other thing we've got to think about, and and maybe we've been a a little bit optimistic about this, is how do we get the pilots out? Because, again, one of the things that NASA test in 84 did was that they, they 
took the plane off under remote control and the the broken wing guys the uh, the the test pilots who we got to do the uh, the flying for us the real flying they said you can halve your problems uh, with the remote control system on this plane if you take it off under manned command mm. because during takeoff as you guys know you're both pilots you've got to trim the surfaces you've got to adjust the throttles you've got to get the thing up in the air doing that by remote control turns out to be very very difficult mm. so the the, 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 the the solution to that we came up with was well let's get it up in the air with people on, on board let's get them out of the plane and then let's crash it on remote control because actually on remote control crashing we're going to crash it <laughs> yeah yeah well it doesn't really matter does it, it doesn't really matter you know as long as it crashes and has, uh, has has michael o'leary from ryanair been on yet because of course their planes you don't get allocated a seat has he rung on rung you to complain that everyone's running to the back of the aircraft no, no he hasn't but but funnily enough there's a, <laughs> there's a real irish interest in this i've i've been on three irish radio stations in the last two days and and i get that joke all the time it's uh, everybody <laughs> Says uh, says the next thing we'll be hearing is Ryanair going to charge you more to sit at the back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, they never miss a trick, do they? Well, Jeff, I, I personally can't wait to see you shoot down a satellite. Well, I, I have in principle permission to do that, but that's that's a that's a really <laughs> really big deal to do that one. Listen, so, Jeff, so. it's fabulous to speak to you, and thanks for an amazing TV show. We we love watching it. And, and if anyone hasn't seen it, it's on Four OD. Four OD. Yeah, Four OD. Still go to website and still see it. Yeah. Good to speak to you. Thanks ever so much. Not at all. My pleasure, guys. Flaps podcast. So, Jeff was the man with the plan, but what about the man whose job it was to crash the thing? Uh, flying in a chase plane with a remote control in his hand was US Navy test pilot Chip Shanley. Hi, Chip. Hi, Elliot. How are you? Very well indeed. And uh, can we just say what an amazing bit of flying that was, well, despite the fact he ended up in a terrible crash. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose that was mission accomplished. That's the main thing, isn't it? Yes. Yes, sir. Was that the first plane you've crashed? Uh, actually, second, believe it or not. What was the first? Uh, it was an F-4 Phantom, a QF-4. Um, I got shot down. Oh, that doesn't count then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the parachuting out of the back of the 727. That was just the coolest thing. That was that was the most Bond-esque bit of the program. That. Yeah, it, and from my vantage point, uh, you couldn't see it, but when Jim Bob came out, on final approach, he had a big grin. <laughs> no <laughs> surprise. <laughs> so what did you think when they first came to you, the, the, the program makers, and said, we want you to help us crash a plane? Do you think they're those crazy Brits? You know, we were intrigued. We had uh, talked about doing this years ago, and uh, something along the same lines. And then uh, uh, Jeff approached us and, and said, well, I think, you know, we can make this happen, and we want to instrument it. And uh, I was intrigued by the science, too, because I thought, wow, if we could get that data, that would really go a long way with future construction of aircraft and, and just basic safety design. Yeah, and, and also, as, as we saw on the show, it's, it's not just about crashing it, is it? It's crashing it in a certain way that it doesn't turn into just an unsurvivable fireball. I mean, was it very difficult to crash it so specifically? Our biggest concern was fire. Um, and uh, I think you can see in the show that was the scientist's major concern right from the start. In terms of the, the, the crash landing, the reason, the principal reason there wasn't any fire is because you got a very wings-level landing, didn't you? It wasn't, uh, it wasn't at all skew-if. Most of the fuel, especially uh, in the fuel load that we had, was in the wings. So we knew if we could land it flat that uh, most likely uh, we wouldn't tear open any wings. And so if we had a fuel line sever, that would be a minor fire compared to, you know, a huge 
conflagration if, if we tore open a wing and atomized that fuel. As the old saying goes, isn't it? A- any landing that you can walk away from is a good landing. And you, you walked away from this, but, I mean, you can't reuse the plane, so I suppose that's not so good, is it? Yeah, that means it's not a great landing. <laughs> you don't get to log it in your logbook, do you? But, with, <laughs> but, but without, without, yeah. without a, an arrival airport. Uh, you know, I have not logged it because... I really don't know how to log it. Well, yeah, because you can, you because <laughs> you can log it. You were flying it, weren't you? Yeah, I and in the Navy, we just never logged it. It, it was great flying, Chip, and good to speak to you. Well, it's great speaking to you, Elliot, Mark, and I, I appreciate uh, the interview. So, thanks very much for listening, and thanks for all your messages. If you do want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. If you've got a story, or you own an airfield and want us to visit for the flying, email us. We are mail at flapspodcast.com. Or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. If you're really keen, there's Flaps Extended. We've got longer versions of our Nigel Mansell and plane crash interviews. Those are on the website at flapspodcast.com. Next time, Elliot visits the Manchester Runway Visitor Park and tours the Nimrod on display there. The seats on military transport aircraft always face back. And it makes sound sense if you think about it, because you have to do an emergency stop. You're going to get pushed back in your seat, not forward and out of it. So that's coming up in the next Flaps podcast, but thanks for listening in 2012. We'll see you soon. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps. Flaps.